Turn with me to Hosea chapter 8 as we continue our study in the book of Hosea. We have several visitors this morning, so just as a good reminder to even us as a church that we choose to preach through books of the Bible, and so it may seem kind of strange to be in Hosea chapter 8, but we believe that Jesus is on every page of Scripture, and so we just pick books and we walk through the whole thing. And so this morning, that finds us in Hosea chapter 8. We'll be in Hosea for the next five or so weeks, five or six weeks, and then after that we'll be starting a study on the book of Ephesians. So I encourage you to begin studying ahead. Before we come to Hosea 8, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you would help us with it. We are a people who like to pick and choose. We like the things that make us sound good. We don't like the things that make us sound bad. And we really just want all the glory that is only due to you. So Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would convict us of that sin. And that you would show us mercy. And not only convict us, but grow us. Make us more like you as we study your word so that you would be glorified. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as I studied through Hosea chapter 8, this immediate picture that we have is of a vulture circling the nation of Israel. This is a, this brings up certain images to us, right? We've all probably seen a vulture circling in the sky or some sort of buzzard, right? And that's, uh, in popular culture and apparently even in ancient culture, as we read here, the idea of a vulture circling meant that something was dying or that something was already dead. Was, the vulture was getting ready to pounce as soon as the animal was dead and it was going to scavenge on that animal. Vultures typically only feed on dead things, and oftentimes they have to wait, which is why you see them circling. Maybe they're waiting for another predator to leave, or they're waiting for the animal to die. There's lots of things that could be going on there. But when a vulture shows up, the damage is already done. The vultures aren't really killers. They're big birds, but they're not killers. It's too late for any kind of restoration to occur. They're just there to clean the bones, so to speak. And so for Israel, this is a terrible picture of what is to come for them. In the last several chapters, we've been dealing with this harsh rebuke from the Lord concerning the leadership of Israel, both politically and in their religious life as well. As we move through this book, I hope that you've been able to see these oracles, of, these oracles of judgment aren't just for people that are long dead, but for people that are alive today, us, right here. The God who inspired these words is still very much alive today, and He is unchanged. Therefore, it is we who must change as we come to His Word. So as we read through this 
passage today, we'll consider three main ideas, and that comes directly from the text. First, puppet kings, then puppet gods, and then finally, the true, the true God and king. And so with that, turn with me again, Hosea chapter 8, we'll be looking at this chapter in its entirety. Please stand with me as we read from God's holy word. Hosea chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, for it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though... They hire allies among the nations. I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by ten thousands, they would not be regarded, or they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, They sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So let's talk about the context of where we're at in the book of Hosea. In chapter 7, really the whole book, we've seen this charge of adultery against Israel. You have kind of shades of it here in chapter 8. Hosea's the prophet who wrote this book. His personal life reflected what was going on with the nation as a whole. Hosea married and had children with a prostitute by the name of Gomer. Israel the spouse of the Lord, had been unfaithful with many lovers, both gods and other nations. Not only that, but in Israel's latter years, the kingdom of Israel, their leadership had become completely corrupt, which was in no small part to the priesthood becoming completely corrupt. And so where were the people of God to go? Well, Where the people of God go, so usually goes the nation. 
We see that with Israel here in these chapters, with many nations over the years afterwards, we've seen that same sort of trajectory. Now we watch it even with our own nation. And I say that, I want to make it clear, I say this a lot, but I think it bears repeating, particularly as we're dealing in this book of Hosea, which deals with the downfall of a nation. When we talk about the fall of a nation, we're not talking about the the ebbs and flows, particularly of our own country. We're not talking about the ebbs and flows of which man is president. We would only succeed if we had this other man in office. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fall of a nation as a whole, which isn't linked to a particular man, but is linked to our reliance on men rather than our creator. This pattern is plain as we study Hosea chapter 8 and really is plain as you study scripture as the whole. There's only one true Savior found in the Scriptures, and that is Jesus Christ. And looking to anyone but Him is not only folly, it's not only a foolish thing, but it leads to death. shouldn't surprise us to read of a vulture circling Israel in verse 1 based on their history in the Bible so far. As we've been studying through the book of Judges, we would have expected this to happen long ago based on what we studied in Judges But we see this here in Hosea chapter 8. It really should be a wake-up call to us as well, perhaps as a sign of things to come. And that brings us to the first point, puppet kings. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. One of the major ideas that we've seen in the first eight chapters of the book of Hosea is this idea of the knowledge of God and how important it is for the people of God to know God and how the people of God currently lack knowledge of God. And this is leading to their destruction. The priests and the leaders weren't leading the people of God to know God, the people of God themselves weren't seeking after him alone in any way at all. Their lack of knowledge of God has led directly to them not knowing what God requires of them. That's why they went after bad kings, didn't recognize the fact that they had bad priests, and it just continues to kind of tumble on itself. So here in these first three verses, we get this idea of the vulture circling overhead and the people seeing it right but they've noticed it too late there's this cry of the trumpet yet the vultures already overhead the death death is near or it's already occurred in this case and there seems to be some confusion on the part of israel they don't really understand why any of these things are happening to them they say verse two my god we israel we know you but they don't. It reminds me of several places in the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, but notably in Matthew 7, passage that we've quoted many times, where Jesus turns to those who were seemingly doing good, right, seemingly filling out all the check boxes, and he looks at them and he says, away from me, I never knew you. Or in John 1, where John tells us that simply being Israel isn't enough, one must be Born of God, not born in Israel. 
in 1 John chapter 2. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 because I think this passage is particularly helpful for us. 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first six verses. 1 John 2 verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Notice here that John isn't advocating at all a works-based salvation. He mentions that Jesus is the payment or the propitiation in the ESV, the payment for our sin. Yet, he also says that anyone who claims to know God it should be by default keeping the commandments of God. If they claim to know God and they aren't keeping His commandments, then that person is a liar. Jesus said this differently. He said, you will know them by their fruit. It shouldn't surprise us that John, an apostle, is echoing the words of his Master and ours. So as we go back to Hosea 8, for Israel to say, my God, we, Israel, we, we know you is a lie. How do we know it's a lie? Verse 3, Israel has spurned the good. They have rejected good and instead have chosen evil and their enemies pursue them. And we're given, and we're given the way that they first do this. With their kings. Verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. It wasn't the way that God had prescribed them to do it. This is a common theme for Israel. Them replacing some other man with the one true king. It goes back to the book of Judges. With this evil man, Abimelech. You guys may remember Abimelech from our study. Calling himself king. In Judges chapter 9. And they just keep going forward. Israel is always trusting some man to do the job rather than the true king. And it ultimately, I think, kind of crescendos in the fact that they want Barabbas instead of the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus. They always wanted a false king. Anyone but the true king would do. And these kings did nothing to help Israel. They only help themselves. We see that in verses 7 through 10. With their, this it kind of outlines all of their political missteps. They're going after other nations to help them. Yet those other nations are only going to devour Israel little by little. From Israel's early days, God told them they didn't need a king. They only needed to follow him. 
Yet they desired it because they felt like it was the answer for all of their trouble. They looked at the nations around them and they thought, well, look how good things are going for them and they have a king. We need a king. The kings only brought more trouble. And while a few of them followed the Lord at least partly, at least part of the time they did, all of them led Israel down paths that weren't good and they led them away from God. I think for us, this is important as we consider our own context. God has instituted things like the civil government and it has a purpose. Absolutely, God has made it right and good, but it cannot save us at all. No civil government is going to eliminate sin or they're going to be like Jesus, a payment for our sins. They can't do that. They can be a terror to sin, as we read in Romans 13, as the Apostle Paul tells us. But if we want them to do anything else, we're asking way too much of them. If we want them to deliver us from evil, they cannot do that. They're only people. If they want us to make the world a better place, or if, they, if we want them to make the world a better place, they can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. The Christian needs to show wisdom when it comes to their leaders for sure, but trusting them with things that only Jesus can do is not just unwise. It's idolatry. It's sinful. And that brings us to the next point, puppet gods. Look with me again at verses 4 through 6. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is Israel, or it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. Here we have this creation of a calf, which is something that we should be familiar with. It's something that's several times in Scripture we see. Just as Israel spurned the good in verse 3, we see in verse 5 that God has spurned this calf. And why should he do that? Well, it represents a false god for Israel. This calf could be a couple things, and it probably points to both of these things, actually. First, we remember back in Exodus 32, the calf that that Aaron made at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses was meeting with God. There was some fear that Moses had died already, right? And they weren't going to be able to get what they wanted, so they created their own version of God from everybody's earrings. And then they made this little golden cow, and they danced around it, which obviously was not good. It represents a really low point for Israel, and you'd think that they would have learned from that. They immediately were punished for that. But they didn't. They didn't learn. And after the northern and southern kingdoms split, Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, thought it would be a good idea to create worship centers in the northern and southern parts of his new kingdom at Dan and Bethel. And he created calves in these temples so that the people could worship God wherever they were. Because why not worship God using a cow baby made of gold? 
Notice God's intent for the calf. It's going to be broken into pieces. And he plans to do this by having the nation of Assyria come in and burn everything down to the ground. It's not as if the the, uh, calf is just going to kind of fall off its pedestal and the people of God are going to say, yeah, that's right, that was wrong. Assyria is going to come in and literally obliterate the northern kingdom. Verses 13 or 11 through 13 tell us more with this, with the sin involved here. Because Ephraim was, has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They made lots of altars for sinning, pagan altars to pagan gods, all in the name of worshiping the one true God. But they didn't even know him. They made these altars and they thought, well, we're doing a good thing. But in reality, they weren't. When I read these verses, it made me think of the what have, what have come to be known as the worship wars in the early 2000s in the church in this country. It really didn't go anywhere else. else. It was mostly an American church issue. Some of the churches are still doing some version of those worship wars, but only because they are way behind the times. But the worship wars kind of, and you guys, we all live through it, or most of us live through it, right? And it had to do with the style of music. It had to do with which style of music was appropriate. Was it a contemporary style that was the appropriate style for worship? Or was it more a traditional style with organ and piano, right? You guys live through that. And so you have these two altars being built. Contemporary worship, one of the altars. Traditional worship, the other. All the while, no one is really checking out the content of actually what is being sung. More importantly, they're concerned about the instrumentation Right, or who's up front doing it, or, or which group is going to do what, and all the while bringing in songs that don't really worship anybody, maybe other than the people that wrote them. Because contemporary and traditional became the only two right answers, not biblical or Christ-honoring or doctrinally sound. These weren't the answers that anyone was looking for. It was building golden cow babies in the name of worshiping Jesus, whose name was oftentimes left out of most liturgies. Anytime we worship God in a way different than the way that He prescribes in His Word, we set ourselves up for failure. When we focus on things that are unimportant, like music style or what version of the Bible we have or anything like that, we fall into a trap of the evil one. Wanting us to pay attention to the shiny thing while he robs us of the real treasure. The church has a long way to go on this. A long way to go on this. And as social issues, as social issues creep closer and closer to our doors, we'll have ample opportunity to make hard decisions here. 
Remembering our Creator and His Word will always be the most important thing that a church can do. That brings us to the last point, the true God and King. Look with me at verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. So Israel has built palaces, Judah has built strongholds, yet the Lord was forgotten in their planning. The Lord, as we talked about last week, is a consuming fire. And their strongholds and their palaces will be no match for the judgment that the Lord will bring upon them. And what is their charge? Verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker. This kind of has a double meaning to it. Yes, they have forgotten their maker and that they have no knowledge of him. But they have also forgotten him and that they have forgotten that he is a jealous God. That he is a jealous God. In Deuteronomy 4, he tells us right after he says he's a jealous God that he is a consuming fire. That he will not allow them to continue in their ways. They have forgotten him so much so that they didn't even see the vulture that was circling overhead. And by the time the alarm was sounded, it was too late. For the unbeliever here this morning and for the believer, these things mean two different things, really. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, there is one message to you, and that is to repent and believe. Call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. The vulture is circling. If you die in unbelief, there will be no deliverance from the wrath of God outside the righteousness of Christ. If you die in your own righteousness, you suffer an eternal punishment. Call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Accept His righteousness by faith. But for the church, we have to be careful. We don't work for God's favor. And I think that's important for us as the church to understand just as much as the opposite end of that. We do not work for His favor. Thanks be to God, we have that. We have His favor in the finished work of Christ. We have the very righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, we have favor with God. And so we can rest in that. Yet, in that, it might be easy for us to grow complacent. It might be easy to ease into a place where puppet kings and puppet gods don't look so bad to us after all. So in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be vigilant, standing guard, in our churches, in our families, in our own hearts. Pray to God that He would show you these areas of sin in your life. We must pray as a church, as we do, that God would show us our blind spots, that we would repent before the, virtual, before the vultures are circling overhead, and that, that we would be faithful. Let us be faithful to the gospel message. Let us cast down every idol that we may worship the one true God. Let's go to Him in prayer.